Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, and welcome back. Welcome back to the Porsche Cool Podcast. My name is Michael Barth, and this is Owner Stories. It's Tuesday, one of the days of the week that you guys always enjoy. I always get so much feedback uh, from the Owner Stories episodes. Uh, I think it's because we all follow a similar path. We all have similar thoughts, and I don't know. It's kind of good to know that that you know we're not just we're not just the only one. We all have these uh, these crazy uh, Porsche obsessions. We're not crazy. We have these Porsche obsessions. Um, today I have uh, Stuart coming in. Uh, Stuart's coming in from Australia. Another Aussie. Uh, Stuart's going to join me very shortly by Zoom. Uh, as you guys know, have listened to previous episodes of Owner Stories. These are all done via Zoom. Um, primarily because I'm in uh, sunny, well, I should say raining London today. Um, do them by Zoom. Most of the times the audio is okay. I hope, hope there's not too many issues during the podcast. Sometimes uh, the internet will break out, but most of the times it's okay. Or break down, I should say, or break down, break out, stop working. How about just stop working? Um, anyway, let's get on with it. I'm going to get Stuart. He's going to come on. Uh, he's got a pretty cool 911. Uh, and he's got a few other cars which aren't Porsches, which we'll chat about as well. So let me get Stuart on the line. Let me get Stuart through Zoom and let's start talking about his Porsche cooled owner's story. Welcome back, everyone. Like I said, welcome back to Owner's Stories number, what number was it? 40. You're number 40. Um, so today I'm joined by Stuart, and Stuart is a fellow Aussie. He's coming in from Australia, he's coming in from Melbourne. Good morning or good evening, Stuart. How are you? Uh, good evening, Michael. Good, thank you. Thanks for uh, taking the time today, this evening, I should say, in Australia and, and coming on the podcast. No, that's all right. You, yeah, I've really enjoyed it as I've recently found it and, uh, yeah, appreciate you doing it for us. Yeah, I get a lot of messages actually about people who have only just uh, just found it. Some people tell me that they start from number one and I said probably best not to start from number one. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my best work, um, but some people like to start from the beginning and I know a lot of other people just sort of go through all the owner's stories because they just want to hear... Uh, you know, everyone's journey for their uh, first Porsche or their second Porsche. Um, so let's get straight into it. And everyone knows who listens to this episode every week is we always like to start at the same point. Like with Porsche, when did it all sort of start for you? Was it was it a childhood thing where you, your father had a Porsche or your neighbor had a Porsche or you just used to see them in the street around the streets around Melbourne? Or did this happen, you know, much later in life, your Porsche journey? Yeah, so for, for me, it happened later in life. I mean, I was aware of the brand and, uh, you know, I'm showing my age here a little bit. I think my first real exposure to Porsche was playing um, Need for Speed Porsche Unlimited, which was a computer game in the early 2000s, which I, I absolutely loved because you got to do, I loved evolution mode where you'd play through from the 356 to the 996 Turbo and race on some of Europe's best tracks. Um, and you could go through and put hop-up bits on your car and, uh, that that I I suppose I really got a appreciation for the brand and its history through that game, but in, in my early life um, we grew up you know comfortable but not not particularly wealthy and having a Porsche was just not on my horizon. I couldn't have imagined it ever ever happening for me. Okay, so when you start when you start searching for that, you know. We all get our license for the first time. We all start searching for our first car. Did you get? Did you start off with practical type cars because you needed them for work or commuting, or did you did you still want to get something that was a little bit special when you bought your first, you know, your first car? 
Yeah, so I'm I my first car is quite strange. Uh, so my first car was a '74 Ford Transit, which had actually been my grandfather's. So he he bought that in in '76. He was a, a grandfather clock repairer, and okay. when he stopped driving, um, that the Transit was available and it needed quite a bit of work, but it was a, a perfectly serviceable car and it made sense for camping and towing the boat and, and that kind of thing. So I, I got that actually when I was about 15 and with the help of my dad and my brother, um, you know, I, I fixed that up and got that, that on the road for my first car. So that's quite a sentimental car for you then. Is, is that a car that you'll, you'll always hold on to? It's not something yeah. you ever get rid of? No, I, I will always hold on, hold on to that. And you've had that since you were, what was it, 15, you said? 15, yeah. But wow. I, I mean, I remember being like a five-year-old kid and carrying my car seat over to put it in and go for a ride with granddad. So really? certainly, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that, that, that one will be staying around. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so you've got the Ford Transit. That's the car, you, you fix it up, you're driving it. It's got the memories of your grandfather and, and, and your, you know, your youth, so to speak, or it's being a kid. What comes next? You, you've still got the transit. We know that. You haven't got rid of it. What happens next? Yeah, so I had always been sort of into Aussie, Aussie muscle cars were always quite, quite attractive. And when I was just after I'd gotten the transit, I started saving, uh, saving up for a GT Falcon. So, you know, when I first started saving, um, a, a, a sort of late 60s GT Falcon was on my agenda and in the time that I was saving up, the prices probably went from 20000 to 60000 So that was very unrealistic, which led me into a, you know, we'll call it the lesser model, the, the XBGT, so the early mid-70s. So I, I uh, worked really hard as a, as a welder while I was studying and, yeah, picked that up when I was 19. Yeah, and for the international listeners, these are sort of cars like the you know the the GT Falcon, you know seventies um, Falcons. These are sort of cars that I, you know, when people say, "Did you see Porsches when you were a kid growing up?" No, I didn't see Porsches. I saw Falcons. I saw Holdens, and the special cars were like the GT, like you have, Stuart, um, and also like the uh, you know when I was young in the country, it was like I remember there was someone that had a Tirana GTR XU1, which was such a special car to see at the time. Um, and so the listeners know all these Australian muscle cars, they've, they've actually gone crazy in price. Like some of those, some of those seventies and sixties Falcons are in the 200,000s, aren't they now? 200,000? Uh, look, even more for the Bathurst specials. Um, it's, it's, it's common for the homologation specials to change hands for between half a million and three quarters of a million dollars. So that's another car that you probably aren't going to part with, are you? No, I mean, Again, though, my, mine is is the uh, the lower model. It's only probably a seventy thousand dollar car today. But but no, I, I absolutely love it, and I really enjoy driving it. So no, that'll also be staying around. I know you say only seventy thousand, Stuart, but that's that's still a lot for those cars, well, considering it, what they it, used to sell for. Uh, of course, <laughs> and I mean, it, it cost me a lot less than that when I bought it, and I was incredibly lucky. Like with a little bit of help from my parents, I inched over that line before they kind of doubled in the next twelve months. So I was incredibly fortunate to get it when I did. Okay, so there's a there's a Ford trend here. You've got the Transit, inherited from your grandfather. You've got the GT. Um, you're into Fords. You still like Fords. Yeah, I do. I'm into, I'm into anything with wheels, really. So my my father's into vintage cars. So he had a, a DeSoto when I was growing up, a, a 1930 straight eight DeSoto, which wow. we did a lot of work on. 
Um, so that's Chrysler, so Mopar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it really just about anything that's a car I'm interested in. All right, so you've got the Transit, you've got the GT. <clears throat> what do you start looking for next? Is this when the Porsche starts to come into the frame or is there something else? No, so that, that, was, that was what sort of uh, came next into the frame. So I'd had the Falcon uh, probably five or six years and I'd got that sorted and it was running running well and you know done a motor and all that sort of thing. And my brother brought to my attention and, and the attention of a, a couple of other people who we'll, we'll cover in a minute that the air-cooled 911s in the US were really quite a bargain. Uh, and in, in his usual sort of gruff fashion, he bought me the history of the 911 book for Christmas and kind of, you know, handed it to me and said, come on, get it done. So, so what comes next then? What, what comes after the GT? Well, so the Porsche, so my, oh, it does my come 911. Next. Yes, oh, okay. yes, yes, yes. Oh, so, right, okay, because I know there's another car in the mix and I was thinking that was that, the one that came next. That comes oh, that, later. that came later, much later. Ah, that comes later. All right, so we're talking 20, 2015 or 2014, wasn't it? You said that you started looking for a car in the US? Yeah, so I mean, I'd had my eye on it since about 2010 and I'd sort of been saving a little bit of money and starting to think about it, but things things really got serious in in 2014. So I had noticed the prices started to bump and thought, right, oh, I'd really better get onto this or it won't happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, your timing was perfect because as we all know, the prices, even in the US, uh, you know, even 912s that I'm looking for and 911Ts and things like that, everything is going crazy now. Um, and so the international listeners know, and I've, I've said this many times in many other episodes, but for people in Australia, you know, that the benefit of getting it from the US is you can have a left-hand drive car in Australia, especially if it's over 30 years old. Um, it's not like an issue. Um, you can put it on heritage plates. It doesn't cost you much in registration, uh, which a lot of people do. Um, so it is quite a, you know, there's there's shipping cost and whatever, but I want you to explain that a little bit later on. But tell me how you, where did you start looking? You know, we're, we're going back a few years. When did you, Where did you start looking for this 911? And had you decided at that time what model you're actually looking for? Yes. So I, I knew exactly what I wanted. So I read the history book my brother gave me and I'd read a number of articles in Thoroughbred and Classic Cars and Classic and Sports Car and r- really whittled it down. So what, what I wanted was a um, Carrera 3.2 Coupe um, for a number of reasons. So Porsche introduced galvanizing to the bodies of 911s around uh, 1977. So I wanted a car that was after that. That was obviously during the SC era, but but I wanted the galvanized body. And I really wanted the Carrera 3.2 because it was the first 911 with modern fuel injection. Okay, so... so yep, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, so where, and I had a few other bits and pieces I wanted. So the Carrera has hydraulic chain tensioners where the SC doesn't and everybody needs to do the upgrade. And I also sort of, I wanted to do and still want to do a bit more motorsport. Okay. And the Carrera is supposed to be pretty good for that with basically a brake pad change. So okay. where I went looking was the Pelican Parts Forum in, in the US. So two other friends had actually bought cars off the Pelican Parts Forum and brought them back to Australia before me. Yeah, and there's some bargains. There are some bargains to be had on Pelican Parts Forum, and I think casting my mind back, um, Jack in the UK, who is Sunburnt Lobster, who's got the 911S. Um, I can't remember the year he bought. I think he got his off um, Pelican Parts, 
Um, and it was just, you know, it, there's some, you know, you, I guess the thing is you don't just look at all the common places to look. You have to look at the forums. You have to look. I know a lot of people get cars from Facebook who have reached out to me here in the UK who said there's great, they've found great cars on the Facebook marketplace and the eBay marketplace. So did this car just appear on Pelican Parts or you were just, it took a while to find it? So the car actually wasn't advertised. So what, what I did was I went and published an, an ad in the wanted section uh, and I, I grabbed a copy to read for you. So I said, wanted to buy Carrera 3.2 Coupe, looking for a good running car, all years, interesting color preferred. I do not want uh, white, black or red, please. And, and from there, the seller contacted me via a, a private message and said that he had an, an iris blue 85 Carrera 3.2 uh, that he wanted to sell. So he had bought it to do a, a backdate on, but when he got it, he had a few other Porsches as well. And when he got it down to LA, he looked at it and said, look, this is, this is a completely original 100,000 mile car in a good color. I just can't bring myself to, to chop it up and, and make it into a backdate. So therefore, I'm going to sell it and buy something that's more suitable for that. Okay. That, is that a special order color, iris blue? It's quite a rare I, color, isn't it? It's a very rare color. I don't believe it is uh, paint to sample. I believe it's on the catalog, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I saw the image that you sent me that a friend of yours took the photo of, wasn't it, on Instagram? Yeah, <clears throat> correct. And also the images that you sent me through, um, through Instagram as well. It's a great color. I mean, I agree it's, with you. I mean, that's... It's something nice about Carreras in, in those special colors, um, you know, like other people have been on owner's stories who have got the, um, you know, he had the Cassis Red and there's been some really great colors that have come through. Um, so, okay, so you, you, you speak to this seller and what happens next? What do you do next? Yeah, so I, I obviously had a couple of chats via private message. He sent me some photos, which looked good. In, in the background of the photos, actually, I could see a new GT3 and a 993 convertible. Okay. And I think he was a fairly well-off gentleman. The cars were actually stored in a hangar with his private plane. So that, and then I got on the phone and had, had a good chat to him. And, and he seemed like a genuine sort of guy. All right, so he's a collector, he's an enthusiast, he's obviously looked after the car. When you started to dig, um, to dig deeper um, with the paperwork and is, is it matching numbers, was there a lot yeah. of records on the car? There, there were, but I didn't have them available to me. So but being who he was, he was the CFO of a very large business and he only had limited time to, to you know, answer all my questions, which is why he wanted to sell via private message rather than go through the whole rigmarole of, advertising and talking to 50 people. Um, so I arranged to get a, a pre-purchase inspection done, but it was an on-site pre-purchase inspection, which is very common in America. They're probably three or $400 and there's agencies who have <clears throat> a local mechanic in most areas who will go around and do, you know, really a pretty good inspection, a drive test, put like a paint thickness gauge over the car, check for any repairs. Uh, so he, he had the gentleman round to the hangar one morning and he did that inspection for me. So how and did you find, came, sorry, Stuart, how did you find this person? Did you find it through the forums or did you get a con, someone pass on this contact to you? How did you find this person to do the no, PPI that's so reliable? I, well, I just, it's, it was literally the top search on Google when you look for pre-purchase inspections in America. Okay. And we'd previously used the same company for a Chevy Nova that my brother had, had bought. Okay. So it was not a Porsche specialist, which in, in hindsight, and you'll see from where the story goes, 
was a mistake. Right, not a Porsche um, specialist. So you're trusting no. that he has general mechanical knowledge, but not necessarily issues that happen with that model year or Porsches in general. So the guy goes to the hangar. Um, he goes and checks out the car for you. How was the report when it came back? It, honestly, it was it was really good. It was just what I'd hoped for. So it was 300 photos. Um, he took a jack with him, got the car up on a jack, gave me photos of, of everything. Yes. Uh, he took it for a drive. Um, you know, he, he did everything that you could expect and more from somebody who was who was doing the check on site. And the results that came back were enough for you to make a deal on this car? Yes, yes. So I, I did also, as, as you would say, bought, bought the seller. And he did say to me that he had compression and leak down done on the motor and shared with me the results from a recent service. And, you know, the, the two together, trusting the seller and everything he's saying lining up with the pre-purchase inspection, um, yeah, that, that was, I was happy with that. Okay, so you've got the two, the two great ticks. You've got, you know, trusting the seller, you've got the PPI, Everything seems to be in order. So then you make an offer on the car. But before we get there, just tell the listeners exactly what the car is. It's a 3.2 Carrera. Do you, yep. did you, so, what sort of options it had? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a 1985 3.2 Carrera in iris blue with the blue leather trim. In terms of options, it had the uh, six and seven inch Fuchs wheels and an upgrade to an eight-way electrical passenger seat, okay. uh, cr- cruise control, sports shock absorbers, uh, the sunroof, and air conditioning. And how was the, the general condition of the interior for an 85 car? Yeah, really, really, really good. So it's, it's got a, it had 100,000 miles on the clock. Okay. And look, there's, there's a couple of scuffs on the seat. The carpet's a little bit scrappy under the pedals, but... Really, honestly, the the Porsche quality after that many years really did hold up very well. So how long did the previous gentleman own the car for? So he hadn't had it very long. He'd only had it a couple of months, but the the owner prior to him had had it for 20 years. So I, I with my cars, I love to have their history and, and to work out their story. And frustratingly, I haven't been quite able to do that with, with this car. So I know it was sold new in California at Thousand Oaks at the Porsche dealership. Yes. Who don't have a record of who they sold it to. Okay. But I've, I've caught up with it through some receipts with a gentleman uh, up in Bellevue, Washington, who owned it for only a year or two and then sold it on to another gentleman. Um, you know, US listeners, if anybody knows a fellow called Scott Bowman up in, in Washington State, I would love to have a chat to him. He, he owned the car for 20 years. So you're going, so at the moment you're, we're jumping forward a bit, but you're, you're documenting every owner that owned the car. So you want to have that, yeah. that record. Um, I'd love to. And I'd really love to get a photo of it from the 80s or 90s. That's, that's something I've got for my other cars and I'd, I'd love to have it for this. But I think at this point, you know, five, five six years after getting the car and, and not succeeding, it's well, a bit of a pipe dream. You never know. There's a lot of different people that listen to the podcast and there's a lot of U.S. listeners. Um, you yeah. know, our U.S. base is strong. So you never know. There could be someone out there that, that does notice this car and does remember this car. Um, I've seen it happen before. So I just want to go back to the, uh, the guy you bought it from before we get of into course. the other details. The guy you bought it from only had it for two months. Was there a reason why he only had it for two months? Because usually that, it's a bit of a flag for some people. Oh, he's bought it. Yeah. Did he not like it? Did he make the wrong decision? Was there something wrong with it? What was the reasoning well, f- there? 
for him, it was the he bought it to do a, a backdate, you know, uh, body chop and all that kind of thing on. And when he actually got his hands okay. on it, he bought it. He bought it sight unseen. Dare I say, I don't think um, money was a real issue for him. Okay. Uh, and then he got it, and I think he drove it five or six hundred miles, um, and said, "Look, I just, I just can't bring myself to do it to this car." Okay, so that was the reason you did say that before. Okay, so that's that's in, that's yes. that's a good sign, though, isn't it? It means he does it respect is. the car, and he doesn't just want to, you know, bastardize the car or you know change the car from its original form because of the condition it's in. So that's a that's a good a good thing to have. You know, the car is you know is is a great car. So, all right, so you get this PPI done. The the car's in California. What? How do you work out how to get this car? Are you going to trust a? Are you going to get a freight company to bring it back, or are you going to take a trip to the US? What do you do next, Stuart? Yeah, well, so we actually took a trip to the US. So my brother Ross and I had been talking about going to the US for a long time. We'd never been, and it's sort of we we timed it in. So we said, well, if we're going to go to the US, we want to do a road trip for a few weeks. Why hire a car if you're going to buy a car in the US? Let's go over and drive it before we before we bring it home. So the way we made that happen was I got it popped in a warehouse. So so Cars USA or uh, I think their classic automobile relocation services have a warehouse in in Long Beach in California. So I, I had spoken to them and and teed up to have the car stored there, and and so he simply drove it down there one Saturday morning and and handed the keys to to those those kind people and and left it there uh, and that that was in late january and, and i was to go or i went over in august uh, to pick it up okay that's a lot of trust there isn't it there's still a lot of trust there because january to august is quite a long time <clears throat> um, yes it is these people do have a very strong international reputation and, w- and when you look at the cars they deliver every year to to pebble beach and to goodwood and, and that kind of thing and it, look it wasn't the cheapest way to store the car but their reputation was strong enough that I was very comfortable with it. Okay, so you've you've spent the money, you paid the seller, the seller takes it to the storage place, um, respectable storage uh, centre. When you go to the US, how was the car when you first laid, laid eyes on it? Was it as you expected or was there some, some more issues? Yeah, a, a bit of both. So I first laid eyes on the car after 13 hours on an overnight flight. Um, <laughs> Not I, good. <laughs> I, so, well, you know, at least it wasn't Europe. It's much longer if you go to Europe. But so I'd never been to the States before. And, and what we actually did was on the way from the airport to the, the lockup where the car was, we stopped at the DMV to get the appropriate permit to allow us to drive it out of California. And that was a four-hour wait in 30-degree temperatures. So I was, I was pretty tired when I first got there. Uh, but, but it was exactly as I'd hoped. It was, you know... A very nice original car. It had a few stone chips and marks, all of which I'd, I'd known about. It was exactly as described, which which was very pleasing. But when we we got there and we'd known, the storage people had told us the battery was dead. So the first thing that that we did was pop the pop the frunk open and got the battery out, and borrowed a trolley from them and walked down to the local, uh, I think it was O'Reilly's, where they I had pre-ordered a battery and they had it waiting for me. And for any of our American listeners, um, two Australian gentlemen walking through <laughs> Long Beach with a battery on a trolley, look, you stick out a little bit. It was a, 
Yeah, I was going to say, Stuart, you should have had at least one night's sleep. You you couldn't wait. You had to go straight there, right? You had to just do it there and then. Let me ask you a question before we go any further, though. How did you organize the insurance with at the storage place? How did you get make sure the car was covered? And did they provide the insurance when you pay them the fee, or how does that work? Yeah, so while it's under their care, it's under their insurance, so they've got it covered. Okay, so you go and get a battery. You take it back. You've gone to the DMV. What about the insurance side of it then once you get the battery yep. in the car and you're ready to drive it? Yeah, so, so that's an interesting story in itself. So what we actually got from the DMV was a permit to drive the car. Like a, uh, in Victoria, you get like a, a day permit or a, you know, a take it to the roadworthy place type thing. Because if you register a car in California, you have to pay California sales tax, which is pretty vicious, about $3,000. Right. So... I had paid $27,000 US for the car and the tax would have been about $3,000. However, the seller had had sort of pointed me in the direction of looking in another state and I had discovered that um, Arizona have what they call a 90-day non-resident permit. So if you can prove that you're not a resident of, uh, I think it's only of Arizona, but, but definitely another country counts, you can buy for $30 a permit to drive a car for 90 days once I had arranged that that was how I would register it, I then spoke to Farmers Insurance. Uh, I, I can't remember how I got onto the guy. If anybody's ever interested, just hit me up and I'll share his details. Uh, and, and he had arranged through Farmers, which is one of the big brands in America, insurance for the, for the car during the trip, which I think it cost me $120 US a week, which, which is quite expensive. But when you consider you're there for a five-week trip, you say, hey, you know, that's fine. So that sort of insurance, and I'm trying to think about the ruling in the UK here because I've kind of looked into it, but not 100%. And it's about having an address in the UK. Do you have, you can still get that insurance even though you don't have an address in the UK, the insurance? Is it traveler's insurance, is it? No, I, he let me use the street address of the farmer's insurance office as my address. Oh, really? So they, they're quite reasonable then? They're quite yeah, helpful? Yeah. That, that being said, he had a copy. You know, I had to do a driver history. He had a copy of my passport, my Australian driver's license. You know, I wasn't getting away from anything uh, if, if something had gone wrong. Okay. So the car's fully insured. Everything's fine. Um, you put the battery in. Is that when you... <clears throat> you so you, you've driven to Arizona already or you're about to drive to Arizona? No. We're, we're, so we're in the warehouse, we've popped the battery in, uh, we, we've got everything organised and, and we started up for the first time and, and kind of worryingly, it blew quite a bit of smoke in the warehouse. So air-cooled cars, when they sit for a long time, ha- have been known, oil drains into the sump, uh, out of the dry sump tank, and, and it can blow some smoke. So you, you sort of go, okay, look, this is probably fine. Uh, and, and we packed up all, all of our gear into the car and, and headed out into rush hour traffic in, in LA, which is legendary, um, as I think most people probably <laughs> is know. That, sorry, Stuart, is that the first time you've driven a left-hand drive car? No. So okay. Ross, my brother, has a left-hand drive Chevy Nova. Okay, and I okay. had actually only very briefly driven two left-hand drive 911s in Australia, probably for like two kilometres each before I went. Because driving a left-hand drive car in, you know, in the States or even in the Middle East where I was, you know, based in Bahrain, um, you really do have to unlearn everything you've learned before. Do you know what I mean? You really do because yeah. you do slip up every now and again and you look the wrong way or, you know, oh. it happens quite easily. Even after six or 7,000 Ks, I still lack 
one time at night, I remember looking the wrong way. And fortunately, Ross called me on it. He's like, you're about to do something stupid and you need to stop. But it's it's such a habit, as you say. Yeah, it's even like re- reversing, Stuart. You look after looking. You know, you're so used to looking over one shoulder, and you have to look over the other shoulder. You know what I mean? Like it's it's such a weird thing at first. You get used to it, and it, it becomes sort of second nature again. But it does take a while to sort of adjust. All right. So what happens next? So we head out into LA rush hour traffic. Uh, I haven't slept for thirty hours. Um, and the night, the, the transmission in the car was okay, but it was second gear was a bit crunchy. So I'm trying to, trying to work around a 915 with not great shifter bushings, uh, damaged second gear synchro, which I had kind of knew about and, and drive through L- LA rush hour traffic to get over to Venice beach where we were staying. It was, I mean, obviously I'm elated to be driving my 911, but it was a pretty stressful, stressful drive. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the memorable first drive in your first Porsche, your first 911, and you do it in um, peak hour LA traffic. So <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not ideal. And I'm guessing there's going to be a great drive that comes up that you want to share with the listeners when you actually did get the right feeling for the car and did actually get it all, you know, everything came together. Um, yeah. So you're in it, Venice. So you stay in Venice. You've got a garage. You've got a garage there for the car, of course. When you wherever you're staying, or was it on the street? No. So we we street parked it, but it was in a nice part of town. Um, yeah, it, it, there was plenty of other nice cars in the street. So the the synchro with the second gear and the and the blue smoke. The blue smoke goes away. That was just the sitting for six months. The battery sorted. Um, did, does the gearing get any worse or it's okay? Uh, no, the, the gearbox is fine. I mean, in, in Australia, I, I actually drive a car regularly with a crash box with no synchros. So I, I can adjust the revs and, and double it down. And, you know, that, that, that that's fine. I can deal with that. I hadn't really noticed any more smoke, but the next day we took it for a drive out to the, to the Nethercut Museum, which is a wonderful collection of mainly vintage cars and a beautiful, you know, full marble museum. And that was great. And we thought, okay, well, we're in LA, Sunset Boulevard's got to be the thing, right? That and Mulholland Drive. So we, we popped onto Sunset Boulevard to, to head home, uh, back, to, back to Venice, and it wasn't really running right. And it became a bit, a bit obvious that, that we were probably, probably down a cylinder. Uh, and we, we stopped in, I, I might be getting the order of events a little jumbled because it is six years ago. We stopped in at the, at the Getty Center to go to the art museum. And while we were sitting in the queue to get in there, there was some more blue smoke of a pretty significant volume. So right. it's running a bit rough. We're blowing an embarrassing amount of smoke and it's not, yeah, I, I'm not yet having a heart attack, but I, I'm not super happy about it. So the PPI didn't show anything wrong with it this. did not. Nothing at all. No. Okay. No, and the and the gentleman had, had taken it taken it for a drive, um, and the seller had been using it to commute to and from work for a little while, twenty or thirty miles, but then it had sat sat quite a while. So I, I jumped onto Pelican Parts and, and sort of asked for people's thoughts, and, and there were various different thoughts about what might be going on. A couple of guys said, "Look, it's a car that hasn't done many miles for a couple of years." You know, maybe the valve guide seals have hardened up a bit. Um, what what you should do is one, drive it, and two, swap it over to this particular Brad Penn branded oil, which has got some additives in it that that's really good for softening up uh, seals that have have gone hard. Okay. So how so do you go about that? 
Yeah. So with that in mind, um, the next morning, firstly, it's running on five cylinders, which is intolerable and and you know bad for it. Yeah. So the next morning, we we jumped in the car, went round to O'Reilly Auto Parts, which is uh, you know a very big automotive parts retailer in America, and I bought all of the tools I needed to change the plugs. I bought a set of plugs and I changed them in the car park, and, and the cylinder came straight back. But there, there was some oil on, particularly number three and number six. Okay. So I'd arranged to buy a case of the Brad Penn oil on the way out of town. Um, so we, we had to head to, to Kingman in Arizona to collect our 90-day non-resident registration, which is on the way to Vegas. It's a little bit off, off the, the beaten track, but it's on the way. So I picked up a case of oil on the way, and I booked in at a, a, a workshop called Carl's Place in Vegas in two days' time to get an oil change and a filter change and get this you know special oil Okay. Uh, put in the car. But were you comfortable driving it to Vegas? It's not a short drive. Yeah, I, I'm fine with that. I mean, like it had oil pressure. It was running well. It blew some smoke at idle, but once you were up and going, it was fine. Um, I, I had no reason to think. Uh, we've, I'm fairly mechanically handy. I, I had no reason to think that it would give us trouble. Okay, so you get to Vegas. You take it to this um, specialist. How did, it yeah. all, how did it all pan out with him? So they were great. Uh, the guy actually raced an SC, the fellow who, who owned the shop, and okay. they did the oil change. And I said to him, look, it's been blowing some smoke. Uh, and in, in the two days they had the car, it didn't blow any smoke at all. It was golden. <laughs> he took it for drive. It seemed fine. They, they, put, they put this new special oil in it. And then, of course, as I go to start it up to leave the shop, cloud of smoke. Really? Oh, my God. You know. Uh, uh, so anyway, it is what it is. It's got fresh oil in it, you know, maybe with a few hot runs in this good oil, maybe it'll clear up, maybe it won't. Yeah. So we were heading to Mammoth Lakes next, which some of the US listeners would know takes you through Death Valley. So Death Valley is a place in the States, which I, is it the hottest place in America? I'm not sure, but it, it's very hot and very dry. And you're there and in actually, summer as well, aren't you? You're in August, so you're yeah. in summer. And and the air conditioning, of course, is not really functional. So it was a warm trip. I think the highest temperature we saw was forty six and a half degrees Celsius. Right. Um, yeah, we bought a couple of very big Gatorades to drink on that trip. <laughs> but doing the miles on the car is it is it working its way out? Is it getting better? Is the blue smoke not- disappearing? Is the car feeling like it should? Yeah, so the car feels fine, and the smoke has only ever been a problem at idle. So as soon as you're going, you don't notice there's no smoke behind the car, but we were monitoring the oil level pretty carefully, and really, once we got some miles on, we were using about a litre of oil every 600 miles, which is, is that, not, I don't know if that's normal or not. Is that normal? Not it's, really. It is very far from normal. Far from normal, so, okay. Yeah, I, so every tank of petrol, I had to put in a bottle of oil. Okay, well, that's not good. Yeah, okay. It was not good. But the car was running fine. It would do 80 miles an hour all day. It pulled well up hills. It, 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 you know. so, so I'm still on, on the horse of, look, perhaps this is going to come good. Perhaps it is just a valve guide seal issue. But by the time... So our next destination was Monterey to do the, the Pebble Beach, you know, Concours week. Okay. By the time we got out there, I, I was... It wasn't really getting any better it was still blowing smoke, particularly if you idled in like the queue for a car park or something like that. It, it was a bit of a problem. It was a bit embarrassing. So 
while we were actually at the Quail, which is a really wonderful event on the Friday of the, the Pebble Beach event, yep. I booked it into uh, Don Wise Auto Works up in, in San Francisco for, for the next... I've heard of that for some reason. I don't know where I've heard of that. I have heard of that. Yeah. I mean, again, a recommendation from, from Pelican Parts uh, and what from the forums. And what I had asked Don to do for me was I'd explained the problem and he said, look, I'm very busy but I will do a compression and leak down test for you and I will pop the, the valve covers off and have a look. Okay. So um, yep. we had the next couple of days of our, of our holiday. Um, we you know, finished our Pebble Beach week, which was amazing. Uh, we went to an event there called the Works Reunion where they have 1,500 Porsches in yeah, one no, it's place. Yeah, a fantastic thing to go to. And it's wow. free. Um, yeah. Yeah, so but I am slightly stressing under the surface all all of the time, but but you know still ecstatic that I've got this nine eleven. Yeah, well you're trying to have a relaxing trip, aren't you? You know you've gone and picked up your first nine eleven. You want to just drive it and enjoy it, but you know like all yeah. of these little things, they're all part of the story, aren't they? You know this is all all part of the the ownership and of this car that you have now owned for five years. So Correct. when you take it to uh, Don Wise, is it? Does he get it sorted Don then? Don does, Wise. It, does it all get sorted then, or is <clears> it still ongoing? Sadly not. So I dropped it off at Don's in the morning and we grabbed a rental car and went out to the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, which is also, oh my God, amazing. But so I'm in the Computer History Museum and I get this call from Don and he said, look, I've got bad news for you. Um, You have got worn valve guides and you don't have much compression in cylinder number three. And now that I've got the valve covers off, I can rock the valve around in the guide by hand um, what we think had actually been happening, and, and I, I have no reason to doubt the seller, I'm not, I don't believe that he actually did enough miles in the car to know, yep. and I don't think the PPI guy missed anything. What we think was happening was the way the guide ended up being worn was that a lot of the time the valve would go straight up and down and keep the guide blocked and there would be no oil. But every now and again, it would get off center and rock sideways in that guide. Okay. And then you'd get an absolute jet of oil through at that time. Right, right. So, so did he have time to fix it for you or he still didn't have the time no, to fix it? No. So Don said, look, I'm really busy. I can't do this job for a month. Okay. So that's no good. No, not really. So he, he said, look, where, where are you guys planning to head next? Um, what, what he offered to do was there's sort of a you know, group of Porsche mechanics who all know each other through the industry. And he said, look, where are you heading next? Let me get you some phone numbers and make some calls and see see if I know somebody who could help you. So okay. we were heading to Portland, Oregon to stay with a friend of ours up there. And and there were there were two shops in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so there's Mark Motors and there's um, Steve, a guy who I think it's Rensport is, is his workshop. Okay. So I had a chat to them both and Mark Motors said, yes, we can make the time. We'll move stuff around and we can do it really quick because we're still on our holiday, right? We want the car to drive. Yeah. And, and Steve at Rensport said, look, I, I'm, I'm too busy. But the thing that he did for us that was amazing was he went to all of the local suppliers and machine shops in Portland and said, when this job comes in from this guy, Stuart, from, from Mark Motors, you put it ahead of all my work because I know that he's on a once-in-a-lifetime trip and I, I want to see him get this trip done. So even though he didn't get any of the work, he gave my job priority at all the suppliers, which was just that's great, so generous. Yeah. Was there any point in time, though, Stuart? I mean, you know, you must be getting a little bit frustrated here with the car. 
Was there any point in time where you thought, you know, shit, I'm just going to, I'm just going to send the car back to Melbourne now. I'm just going to send it back to Australia and, and, and just do this trip in another, in a rental car or something like that. Was there any point in time where oh, you thought I'm going to do this? There were many beers drunk and many discussions had along those lines, but we, we had a, a couple of other things going on. I was actually writing an article on the trip for 9-11 and Porsche World. So if I shipped the car home at that point, that article went away. Oh, okay. And additionally, and it, it you know, didn't pay a lot, but it paid a little bit, which was, was nice. So what issue is that article in for the listeners so uh, they can check it out? I'll, I'll dig it up for you and I'll give it to you at the end of the podcast because I haven't got it off the top of my head. Okay. The, so the other thing was from where we were to get the car back to LA was probably $1,000 US of trucking. Yes. And... The other thing is I, I work a pretty high-pressure job and I knew that once it got back to Melbourne, I didn't have time to really look at it. So it would it would be many months until it was running again in Melbourne. So you sit there and you say, yeah. I'm not going to get paid for the article. It's going to cost me $1,000 to truck it back to LA. You know, so I've already will have – I will burn a couple of th- – and then I've got to hire a hire car for the rest of my holiday. Yeah. And I'll I would burn think – yeah, and I would think as well, sorry for interrupting, I would think as well, you know, like even, and no disrespect to Australian Porsche specialists, but there are so many great Porsche specialists in the US, you know what I mean? And getting that car fixed in the US maybe cost-wise, maybe better. Um, I don't know if it would be, but maybe it's slightly better than getting it fixed in Australia. Did, is, that, yeah, is that something it, it, that you were thinking about as well? Look, a, a little bit, I was more on the practicalities and just the spending money, you know, to hire a car, transport the car and, and to miss out on, on the little payment from the article. It, it seemed like throwing good money after bad when I could have reallocated that into, into fixing the problem. Okay, so you're getting it fixed. Um, once this is fixed by, the, by this other specialist, is everything sorted then? Can you then enjoy the car to its fullest? Yeah, so th- so there's a few more twists and turns, as as there always is with with this kind of a story. So we we drove up from San Francisco to Portland, which is a thousand kilometres. So we kept filling it with oil and drove it another thousand k's. And when we got up there, the plan was that we would pull the top end off the motor and see what we found, because the other thing that could potentially be causing this is worn pistons and barrels, which, uh, as I think a lot of 911 owners know, particularly recently, is is about a five thousand dollar problem for new new pistons and barrels and some more uh, wait time. So I dropped it off at, at Mark Motors. The guys ripped into it that day. The next morning, they called me and said, "Okay, this is a top end rebuild. Um, it's just the heads and the valve guides. The bores are savable. We will hone them. We will put new rings in, but but we don't need new pistons." Which was very pleasing because it was a huge cost and and so they they said about um doing a top end rebuild but they did not split the case and take the crankshaft out or or do any of that stuff so what about the cost you bought the car for twenty nine thousand. you said before right twenty nine thousand. Twenty seven. Twenty seven thousand. so do you want to share the cost of how much this cost you to get the car back up to to speed so to speak yeah so in in the end, I spent it was about another eleven and a half thousand US getting wow. the top wow. end rebuild done. <laughs> okay, yeah. Look, we did do some some while you're here things though. So, like for right. example, on the Carreras, the hard fuel line that is is on them from the factory 
can tend to break and is only able to be changed when the engine's out. And that's okay. a couple of hundred dollars. So we got that done. The uh, Another thing that we did was we, we did pull the, the barrels off and upgrade to turbo head studs yep. because head studs are notorious for, for braking. And if you upgrade to the turbo ones, you, you're then protected. We did, we refaced the cams, we refaced the valves. We did a proper job, right? We didn't just bang it back together and, you know, get it running for the trip. We we did all of the things that ought to see this motor now run through to 300,000 miles. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, were you expecting a bill of 11 grand though or were you expecting it to be a little bit less than that? Was well, that a shock? Uh, you you had the money ready? You were You were ready for it? No, but I, I had some money saved, which I, I was able to put my my hands on at relatively short notice. Um, look, the guys at Mark Motors were were really great. They gave me an expectation of what I was looking at, and they gave me a low and a high range um, before they even put a spanner on the car. And we did end up at, at the high end of the range. But every time they rang me and said, "Hey, we would normally do this. Do you want it?" I said, "Well, yeah, actually, I do want that." So when they're checking it over, um, Stuart, do they check out the tires and everything are okay? You don't need to replace the tires, the suspension, you know, the main parts of the suspension are okay, everything's all right? Yeah, they, look, we, we did put a set of front tires on it because they were a little worn, which, okay. which I had known about. Uh, but other, other than that, it checked, out, it checked out really well. And they, so they, they, they had the car for nine days and, and I rented a car and went up and did another part of the trip uh, while they had the car. And before they gave it back to me, they put three or four heat cycles on it and drove it about 100 miles. So they wanted to be very sure, given that I was going to take the car and drive it another couple of thousand miles, and they would never see it again, that they had it on point before they gave it back to me, which, which I really did appreciate, even if it did take an extra day or two to, to get that level of certainty. Okay, so you pick it up from Mark Motors, you're back on your journey through the, uh, through the US in your new, new to you 911. When Correct. you first started up, there's no more blue smoke and everything Perfect. goes okay after that? Yeah. So so we picked it up from Mark Motors in the pouring rain on a Friday night in peak, <laughs> peak hour. You don't have much um, luck with that, do you? You always peak no. hour in always bad conditions. <laughs> yeah. So so we're, we, and, and we were, so we'd lost nine days of a five-week trip to this engine rebuild. So we're, we're really on a mission now. Like Ross and I are going, right, we're going to drive as many good roads as we can between Portland and LA when we've got a, a fixed time book for the car to go on the boat. So we, we left Mark Motors on the Friday night and, and we put 150 or 200 miles on it on the Friday night. And we're, you know, running the rings in like, because when you run in a new set of rings, you've got to power on, power off, different speeds, heavy yep. throttle up hills. Um, and we stopped at this diner in the middle of nowhere and, and really went over the car before we had dinner. And it is spot on. Like it, it is running beautifully. It's pulling well. There's no smoke. The oil level is not changing despite the fact that we're covering miles. And it was, it was perfect. So when, you re- when you've finished the running in and now you've realized this is my first 911, you've gone through the, you've gone through the hassle of having to fix things, but at least everything's sorted. How was that first drive, though, when you first actually could let it out, drive it properly, yeah. and enjoy the experience? Yeah, look, it was great. It was exactly what I had hoped the 911 would do. It, it steered well. It braked well. Um, it, 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 was, it was wonderful. And, it, and actually, I think the next day or the day after, we picked up what was our favorite road of the, in the U.S. So there's a road that runs from a place called Yerka to Redding, 
um, via a town called Happy Camp. It's about a, a... it's about a 250-mile road. And the way we found it was literally Ross sitting there on his phone going, that road looks twisty and it's paved. And, and to just do that, like, 250-mile drive and we, we took, you know, swapped spots a few times and, you know, it's glorious and sunny and it's summer um, and the car's running great and there's no traffic and the surface is good. It was, it was really great. Oh, that's great. So now it sinks in. You're with your brother. You're enjoying your first 9-11 and then it, it all makes sense. All that, all that hassle beforehand all, all makes sense and, and the car's sorted. So you enjoy yeah. driving it around the States for a few, more, a few more weeks. Correct. How do you – let's jump forward a little bit. How do you um, – have you already pre-organized the shipping back to Australia or do you do this – during the trip when you're driving? How did you sort all that side out of it out? Sure. Yeah. So, so I had that organized before I, I left for America. Uh, so we used a company called uh, Am- Amaroz uh, Shipping. Okay. So what, what the deal was, was that we would drive it down to their, their warehouse and, and drop it off and, and that they would take it from there, put it on the boat and bring it back to Australia. Okay, so they looked after everything. They get the car prepped for Australia. Everything is everything is done by them. Yeah, I mean, I, I cleaned it before I took it to them. I took it to the car wash and gave it a really, really good scrub, particularly because in the back end of California, we went through a locust storm, which honestly, it sounded it it, it was a vicious locust storm. So I had a lot to get off it. Uh, but yeah, they they did they did everything for us. They they were really good. So that thing that I that I hear about when you import a car into Australia, does that happen at export from the US or does it happen when it gets entry, enters into Australia where they have to completely clean all the under, undercarriage and get all the dirt off, et cetera? That has to happen before it's shipped? Uh, it can be both. So you clean it as well as you can before it leaves the States. But if Australian customs look at it and they're unhappy with it, they clean it themselves and, and charge you a, a little bit more, which, which I think... From memory, did happen with the Porsche, and it cost me an extra five or six hundred dollars, which, in the scheme of things, is not a lot. Okay, all right. So you you've put the car, you've taken the car, you've you've done the trip through the U.S. You've had your memorable drive in, in the nine eleven in the U.S. You picked it up, um, a story you'll never forget, especially with your brother as well by your side. So then you you ship the car and you come back to Australia. How long does it take before you see the car in Melbourne? Yeah, so I, I dropped it off. Uh, in America on the September the 11th, uh, and I saw it in Melbourne mid-October. So five or six weeks. Okay, that's quick. Yeah, I think, reason, they had a, mm. a boat, I think they had a boat that was loading the next day or the day after. It, it, it isn't always that fast. Yeah, I was going to say, it's normally a lot longer, isn't it? But I guess if you tie it up with the boat that's leaving, then that's, that's good. Okay, so not that long. So it comes to Melbourne. It, it has to do the... The rounds through quarantine and through customs. Um, based on the cost of the car, was it about another 20% for importing the car or less? Uh, I, I, I'd like to just tell you accurate figures okay. if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the shipping and the insurance wallet was on the water cost me $4,000. And it, look, this, this is five years ago. It will have gone up a little. Okay. That, that cost me $4,000. I had to pay GST on the price of the car. Um, yes. which is 10% of the car plus 10% of any cost you spent in the US. So it, it worked out to be about $3,700, I think they assessed it at in, in the end. Okay. Um, and I, what else did I have to pay? I missed luxury car tax because it was under that threshold. 
Yeah, the, sorry, the shipping was four and a half. I've just grabbed the receipt here. So four and a half thousand for the shipping uh, and, and yeah, about, about $4,000 in GST. Yeah, and so the listeners know, luxury car tax in Australia, if you're importing a car, even if it's 30 years old, um, and the sh- when you the price of the car converted to Australian dollars plus the shipping on top of that um, is what the what they cal- what they use as the luxury car tax amount. Correct, Stuart? Yeah, that's right. And the, the threshold is currently sixty nine thousand dollars. So yep. for every uh, for everything above sixty nine thousand dollars, you pay a thirty three percent luxury car tax on on that value. So yeah. it, it is it's expensive. You know if. if if you buy a car that's $76,000, you go, yeah, whatever, it's a couple of hundred dollars. But if you buy an, a proper expensive car, it's a lot of money. Yeah, if, it get, if it's like 120000 Australian dollars, it, it's quite a lot of money in luxury car tax, so it does bump it up. Um, it does. I think with the last time I did a calculation on some side, I think it, you know, with if the freight and everything on 120000 Australian converted, I think it was about thirty grand or something on top. It sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the cars, you, you get the car cleared. Let's, let's skip all the, the paperwork side of it, but you get the car cleared. Were there any hiccups? Were there any delays in, in getting it through customs? No, it was fine. I, I just caught the train out to a warehouse in, in uh, Port Melbourne and the guy handed me the keys and I started it up and drove it home. Okay, so the, car, the car's only been, you know, off the road, so to speak, for shipping for like five weeks or something like that. Not very Correct. long. So really nothing could have happened to the car. The car should be fine. So when you go on the first drive in Melbourne, you have to obviously go and get it. It's already registered or you, you go and put plates no. on it? Well, it, it's a little harder than that. So okay. the new rules for Victoria are if it's a car, an American car that's not been registered in Australia before, you have to get it uh, approved by a, a, an automotive engineer. Okay. So, so you take it to this gentleman who does a, an assessment for engineering requirements to check that it meets the Australian design rules of the year in which the car was manufactured. Okay. So in my case, I had to put uh, le- uh, right-hand drive headlights, so the headlights point in the correct direction, um, yellow indicators, because in America they have red indicators. He checked that the seatbelts and the brake lines met Australian compliance standards. Um, he, he did a noise test. And which I failed. And in the end, I had to argue the point with him because it had a standard exhaust. The mechanical noise from the rear engine actually breaches the Australian standards for noise level, but it always did, even when any Porsche was new, because the way the test is done is very um, hokey, okay. if, if you will. It doesn't take into account that, you know, the engine's down the back. But in, right. in the end, we, we had a discussion about that and, and worked around it. It was only a very slight uh, thing thing that we had to work around. So I, I got my engineering certificate, and then I, I went down to Vic Roads with the, the paperwork to get my plates. Okay, so that process that this specialist has done, you, you couldn't go to a Porsche dealer to do that? You couldn't go to you know a Porsche mm-hmm. network dealer or a Porsche specialist to do that? No, no, it's a specialised automotive engineer who needs to do that. I'm, I'm sure that... A Porsche dealer would broker the service for you, but oh, okay. it would end up with one of these specialist engineers. Okay. All right. So you've got all those memories. You've got the car in Melbourne, Stuart. Um, when do you get a chance to take it out on those uh, those beautiful Victorian roads? Yeah. So ironically, I wasn't actually the first person to drive it uh, really in Victoria. What? So I'd had it. I'd had it home. I'd had it home three weeks, and we we were running a little rally. Uh, my brother and I, 
and and a couple of gentlemen who we didn't really know from the Porsche Club had said they were going to come on this rally that we were running. And, and it was the first time we'd done it. And, and the night before the rally was supposed to start, that they rung me and said, look, our three-litre Carrera has broken down in regional Victoria and we can't come. Like, we've entered, but but we haven't got a car. And I said to them, well, look, you know, you seem like nice guys, you're Porsche people, so what I'll do, I'll bring the car along and you guys can take it on this rally and uh, because otherwise you can't come and that's terrible and, and I'm organising it and we didn't have many numbers and, you know, I really wanted people to come. So, in fact, they, they took it for its first drive through, through Victoria and over the Alps and around a couple of tracks and, and all of that. So what was that, a Porsche rally, was it? No, it was a, it's a rally called the three-day trial, which, which I organised, but that's on a bit of a permanent hiatus at the moment. Okay. Um, the Instagram photo you sent me the link for, you, it said that you'd bar- lent it out to a friend and that was going to Hangabanger, was it? Yeah, that was a, a different friend. That was a different uh, yeah, friend? It was. Okay, so now the car's in Melbourne, though. Do you, you had all the work done um, in the U.S., do you still want to take it to a specialist here and get it checked over again or everything's okay? Uh, no, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, so there was some stuff that was wrong, but I, I do most of my own work on my cars. So I'm, I'm pretty, pr- pretty happy that I, I know where it's at. Um, after it had been here a little while, I still wasn't very happy with the gearbox. Second gear was still kind of crunchy. I had a drive of another friend's uh, I, 75 that's got a, an 81 SC driveline in it and my car really wasn't where it should be so I dropped the motor out of the car and I pulled the gearbox off and then I took the gearbox down to a a Porsche specialist uh, here in Melbourne who ironically had done the Porsche factory training with the gentleman in the states who built my motor so they actually really? knew each other wow what a small world yeah, so I got the gearbox rebuilt, and when they were in there, they found that there was a bit of an issue with the uh, the diff as well. The engagement had had changed so that it wasn't ideal. So we readjusted the diff at the same time, uh, and I got the gearbox back from him, put a new clutch in it, uh, and put the motor back in the car. And since since then, I basically haven't laid a spanner on it other than to change the oil. That's great. So everything is done. So it cost you twenty nine thousand dollars US, twenty seven thousand US. Cost you eleven thousand in Oregon, wasn't it? Um, which is yeah, which is about fifteen Australian. So 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 twenty seven thousand. Yeah. So how much? And then the work you had done in in Australia. So what was the? If you don't mind sharing it, what was the cost no. all up that you paid for the SC landed in Australia back in twenty fifteen? Yeah. So landed in Australia was forty four plus the work. So probably about sixty thousand dollars on the road with a new engine and a new gearbox. Okay, which is. For the international listeners, is is a well priced uh, three point two, isn't it? it? It look, it really is, and uh, even in twenty fifteen, mm. even then, and look, even preparing for the podcast because we, Michael and I, were talking about it over Instagram. It it is still realistic if you hunt in the right places on on Pelican Parts or on um, maybe Hemmings. There's there's a few places to look where an Australian person could think that they could buy a car like mine and have it in Australia for between about fifty-five dollars and $80,000. Like that, that is still realistic uh, at, at the moment, even in the current crazy market. Yeah, because, I mean, US is still the, <clears throat> the better price market to buy it. I mean, I've seen some reasonably okay 3.2s here for sale in the UK. I mean, one was a G50, and that's about 63,000 pounds. 
So they're not, they're still cheaper to get them from, from the US. Um, what was I going to ask you? The- well, so I've got an interesting piece of trivia for you. I looked into it because I was interested. During the entire 3.2 run, they delivered about 800 cars to Australia. During that same period, so 84 to 89, they delivered around 37,000 cars to the US. So yeah, see that that's that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? That's why you 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 search out the US. But I think that point you made, Stuart, just before about piston heads, how you found yours on piston heads or um, Pelican parts, sorry, Pelican, Pelican parts. parts, yeah. And then there's piston heads, you know, here in the UK. I think those sort of places and and other people, other owners that I've spoken to, um, US and in uh, UK. You know, it's getting these cars off market, getting these cars before they're advertised. Like you said, the, the guy that owned your car was, you know, a, a busy guy. He was a CFO. He wanted, he didn't want to advertise. He didn't want to mess around, you know, people at, at, at time poor. Um, so I think what you did was a really good thing to do where you just put the, the ad out on, on Pelican Parts and you got people coming to you saying, well, I've got this car. Are you interested? And I think that's still the way to do it. And, you know, in Australia at the moment, you know, talking uh, to James at Porsche Platz at RSR Classics in in um, in Melbourne, you know, all these cars are selling, uh, you know, off market. All the good cars even in Australia are selling off market. Um, so I think you definitely did it in the uh, in the right way, and also enjoyed it in 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 the US, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, it was it was wonderful, and look, I really can't say enough nice things about the buying process. And honestly, even though I ended up with a car with problems and my two other friends who bought US cars have had basically carefree running for many miles. I'm not really upset about it. I genuinely believe the seller did not know. And in hindsight, I would, you know, he was a busy guy. He, he seemed fine. The records were there. But in, in, in hindsight and for anyone else, get the car taken to a Porsche shop in the US. You need a compression test you need a leak down test and you need them to take the valve covers off and check you don't have a broken head stud. If I had done that, obviously I would have been able to negotiate a better price. But it is if you do that, you should not feel scared to do what I did. So that's not a standard thing that PPI, a PPI is being done in the US. That's not a standard thing that they do. They don't do the compression test. For an air-cooled 50-50. Uh, yeah, for an air-cooled 50-50. Well, you have other... to ask for it. Is that what it is? You have to actually specifically... You should specifically... ask for it. Right. A Porsche shop would probably do it. My, my friend that bought an 88, his PPI did have that included at a Porsche shop. But yeah, those, those, that specific thing is, is what you should do. Yeah, I think it's look. There's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of listeners who are looking for their first 911, and I know some people are a bit scared off air cools because air cool prices obviously in Australia are way too high. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, SCs were actually okay. Uh, SCs, you know, are not that high, but they're going up in Australia. Obviously, they're going up very quickly. But the fact that you could get a 3.2 Carrera, you know what I mean, and you can still get it at a reasonable price. And I think, like you said, the production numbers being so high, the cars are still out there. Um, so I think, you know, it's a, it's a good alternative to people looking for, uh, you know, very expensive now 996s um, that maybe they should start looking at the States and start looking at maybe bringing in an air-cooled. Um, do you have any regrets yeah. of, I mean, you've, you've driven old cars before, so you're used to them. Do you think the 3.2 Carrera is a good first Porsche for a non-Porsche owner? Yeah, I do. The thing that I, so one of the reasons I sorted out was, was that, that fuel injection. So it is a car where you put the key in it like a modern car, you turn the key, it runs, it looks after itself. Um, unlike a carburetted car, a CIS car like an SC, 
it's still got a hand throttle. It's still a bit hard to get going when it's cold. So yeah, I, I would have no... So my wife is not an old car person before she met me. And she has taken the car away for the weekend on her own a couple of times. And I'm not worried about getting the phone call. It won't start. It won't run. Um, it's, it's giving me trouble. They are pretty reliable and, and relatively easy to drive. So is this the only Porsche that's going to be in your garage? Garage? Are you Now you're used to this US uh, importing. And you did it a while ago, but you, you know the process. Are you thinking yeah. maybe there's another one coming along or would you get something else? I would get something else. Um, I, like you, have a Ferrari itch I would like to scratch. But it's a bit of a reach at the moment. Well, um, <laughs> yesterday uh, I recorded another owner's uh, story this week uh, for, tomorrow, for this week's episode, actually. Um, and the gentleman in New Zealand, he's got a Ferrari Dino. And I still think the Ferrari Dino GT4, talking of Ferraris, somehow really complements air-cooled, water-cooled Porsches. It just goes really well in the garage. And they're not that expensive. And I know a lot of Ferrari uh, enthusiasts don't like them. But for me, I still think it's a nice-looking uh, nice Ferrari. That and the 328. But you know, like you said, the prices are, are definitely going up on 328s. Dinos are okay. Yeah, look for me, a Testarossa is what I've got my eye really? on. You're going, you're going yeah. top end there, Stuart. You know, like I know. You know, five years thing, ago, five years ago, you could have got a bargain on the on the Testarossa. They were like very low, very low. Look, this is a bit of a pipe dream at the moment. <laughs> so it, 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 it's uh, honestly, in a way, the real trouble is finding one that's been driven enough because everybody's got a Testarossa that's got ten, twenty thousand miles on it, and the price is is the same. And if you buy a 20,000-mile G50 Carrera, the price is insane. Finding a Testarossa that's done enough miles that I'm prepared to afford it. So you'd yeah, buy a U.S. car? You'd buy a U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. Or a U.K. US, a Japan, UK car? Japan, yeah. Less in U.S. and Japan. And I'm really only at the start of that journey. And a few things would have to happen for that to become a reality for me. Like, it's it's a real reach and it's it's... Yeah. We'll see. I don't even know the pro- – I mean, you know, I watched a video on YouTube the other day, the guy that's based in London, TGE TV, and he just bought one from a dealer, um, which is on YouTube, which is worthwhile watching, but his is quite immaculate, and it's gone through the Ferrari program, Closisha, whatever they oh. call it, and it's got all the documentation. But I think he made the yeah. point in the video, and we're getting a bit off track here, but he made the point in the video that the prices were a little bit low at the moment on Testarossas. I don't know why. He said they were a bit, they were a bit down. Um but they're still very expensive, right? I mean, what's the cheapest one you could get in the in the US? Still a lot of money. Cheapest one I've seen sell is sixty-seven US. Really, uh, sixty-seven thousand US. Yeah, that was a high mileage car with a bit of scruffy paint. But I, I'd be fine with that. Well, that's that's quite cheap. Yeah, but like I say, so so that is that is a pipe dream. The yeah. other thing that I kind of have in mind is. Kim said to me, uh, you know, a little while ago. Well, if we're going to be a car family, which I think we are. Um, I wouldn't mind having something something for myself. And I, I have had my eye out for an early Boxster um, for her, which is, is realistically probably what will happen, even though I do have a Ferrari itch. That's a good car as well, though. That's a good car to have on the sta- in the stable, on the garage, that's for sure. Um, Great car, yep. 
Let me know how you go with the with the Ferrari itch. I'd be interested to know if you if you do pick up one. That's um that's a yeah. pretty special car. That's for sure. It's a very very special Look, car. It, it, it would be, and like I say, a, a very particular set of things have to happen. But I, I want to leave the door open for it. And you'd have to do a lot of checks on that for sure, right? Um, because that uh, can just become a very very expensive. Very very expensive. Incredibly. Yep. Yes. All right, Stuart, we're almost at the end of the podcast. Um, I always like to finish the podcast with, and you've touched on your favourite road that you that you had driven your 911 in the States. Um, in Melbourne or around Melbourne area, what's the favourite road you've, you've been on in your 911 or the, the favourite road you'd like to drive on your 911 and you would recommend to the listeners if they ever take a visit to uh, Australia and come to Victoria? Yeah, so the one I'll give you, which the 911 has been on a few times, is Eildon Jamison Road. So it's about two hours out of Melbourne. Uh, it, it's the road between Eildon and Jamison, sort of 60Ks of really nice, fairly new, you know, relatively unpopulated bitumen. Um, it, yeah, that, that would be the real, the one to hit, I think. Fantastic. Um, have you ever driven uh, in Europe? Have you been to Europe and driven the roads around there? Yes, but not in anything good and, and not a lot. I mainly caught the train around Europe. Yeah, next time I next time when everything open up opens up again, the next thing I want to do is get one of those uh, Porsche uh, where you pick the car up from the factory and you can just uh, take it for a day or two days. I mean, it's not cheap, but you can actually experience. And that's the newer Porsches, it's not the older Porsches, yeah. of course. But I think it'd be a nice yeah. experience to even in a nine nine two, you know, nine nine two manual or Carrera S or Carrera would be a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. All right, Stuart, that's great. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to uh, share with the listeners? Before we go? Yeah, there's there's one more thing I'd, I'd like to add. So the, the other thing that's been really great since I got the car here is, is the Porsche community in Australia. And I would like to give a little shout out to the Classic Porsche Australia Facebook page, um, something I joined four or five years ago. But this year, uh, t- two of the other guys and, and myself ran a, an event. Um, you know, it was their brainchild and I ran the track day part of it for them um, called Luft- Luftwasser up in Albury. Oh, okay, um, okay. Um, yeah, and we had 172 Porsche sports cars and about 300 people uh, at the event. Do you know James at Porsche Platz, who's been on Owner Stories before? I, I may have bumped into him, but I don't know him personally. Yeah, because I think he told me about that. He was telling me about that event. I think he went yeah. there, I think, from memory. He probably would have. Um, I, I, so I ran the track day for that event and, and honestly, I was so run off my feet getting the track day to happen that I barely said hello even to the other guys I was organizing the event with. Um, so I, I probably brushed past James and, and didn't even realize. So you're fully immersed and, and you're fully immersed into the community. There's also Nick in um, Melbourne as well from Architect Driving who's got the 901.1 Carrera who's, who's had SCs and 3.2s and GT3s. He does track days as well. Um, so yeah. you're fully immersed in, into the Porsche community in Victoria then. You're, 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 you're deep into it. Correct, yeah. And, and look, the thing I, I would say is the thing I love about the Porsche community is people drive their cars and actually take them to the track, which is, is, is very much along, along my, my line of thinking. I, you know, I drive the car, um, I drive it to work, I you know, put a seat cover on it and put the dog in it. Um, I, I just love to see cars actually driven and, and people seem to do that more with Porsches than with other makes. Yeah, true. And you've done a few track days in the 3.2? Yeah. So I've, I've had it at Sandown uh, the once with actually, again, off that Facebook page, the Classic Porsche Australia Facebook page. Um, we had a Porsche class on a, on a drive day. So 15 Porsches on track at one time. Uh, we, we did that and that was fun. 
Um, and, and it's been to a couple of hill climbs and some sprints and, yeah, I, I want to do. It handles well on the track? It's great. It, it, I want to do more, but, but I have had a very busy last couple of years. I actually intended to do some, some tarmac rallying with the car when I first got it, but I've never quite gotten around to that. So hopefully in the next couple of years I can get a half cage in and, and do a little bit of that. Yeah, it'd be great to um, go to Tasmania and drive around there. That would be a good thing to do. I'd like to do it that really in, would. in my 911. That would be a great thing to do. You you should. I have been lucky enough to do it oh, in you have? the passenger seat of my – I haven't taken the 911. I went in the passenger seat of my brother's E-Type and that was – you should go to Tasmania. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. I've been saying to Steve that we should do it. It'd be a great thing to do. All right, Stuart, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for um, for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your story with all the listeners. No worries, Michael. Thank you for, for having me on. No, it's been great. And I, you know, just learning about that import process, you know, something I'm always thinking about. And sometimes it feels a bit scary if you haven't done it before, but, you know, like your knowledge and, and your experience with it, I think will help you know, the people in Australia who were sort of like on the fence whether they should do it or they shouldn't do it. Yeah, look, it, it was fine. You've got to do your research. And, and the last thing to add is these days you've got to make sure you get your asbestos checks sorted, but your shipper will help you with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Michael. All right, everyone. Uh, that's Porsche Cooled Owners Stories number 40. And that's with Stuart coming in from uh, Australia, from Melbourne with his Iris Blue 85 Carrera 3.2 Coupe that he imported from the U.S., And that's about it today. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.